Good morning. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guest on With Respect is Dr. Jonathan Utley. Dr. Utley has been with us uh, on a prior show and talking about his book and about the history uh, behind his book, which is called Going to War with Japan, 1937 to 1941. Dr. Utley was a professor of history, he's a PhD in history, taught for many years at uh, the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and is now talking to us today about the run-up to the Second World War, especially in the Pacific. Dr. Jonathan Utley, with respect. So, Doctor, how are you this morning? I'm fine, John. Uh, Good. Now, I'm going to tie in some things we talked about in our last show. We got, we got talking about all the history of the of the world, and especially uh, Japan and the United States, uh, but as also Europe, as it as it all related to one another. We started talking about people, the people who affected decisions that were made by governments which allowed or mandated that there be wars in which tens of millions of people were killed. Now, we left off, we talked about uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president from 1933 until 1945. We talked about uh, his uh, his experience in politics as governor of New York and, and a little bit in government as the assistant secretary of the Navy during the, second, the First World War. We also talked about Cordell Hull, who was the secretary of state under Roosevelt for much of the time uh, leading up to the war and through the war. His assistant, Cordell Hull, Cordell Hull's assistant, Sumner Wells, who was a little bit uh, dicey when it came to his boss. Churchill, Churchill, Winston Churchill, the leader of the British uh, people uh, after the war began, and Dean Acheson, a future Secretary of State who also worked in the State Department of Cordell Hulls in the run-up to the war. We talked about um, in a little bit, but now we're going to focus a little bit more on the German leader, Adolf Hitler. Where, do, where does Adolf Hitler come in? Not sure I'm a Hitler scholar, of course, but you know, you know what most people know. He was a person who had probably the great ability was to inspire people and came in at the right time, at the right place, in a critical situation in Germany 
and rose to power because he provided easy answers. And of course, American politicians were saying after Hitler rose to power uh, that the same thing could have happened in the United States, but Germany in 1933 got Hitler, we got Roosevelt. What if we'd gotten Huey Long out of Louisiana? Mm -hmm. uh, would things have gone differently? Uh, and there was a, a nascent uh, national socialist movement in England as well, too. I mean, most of these countries had the element within it. But in Germany, it was where he was able to dominate. And once he gained power, he consolidated power and bred on not love and you know, support, but on hatred and finger pointing. And, uh, promised to return Germany to its greatness that Germany had experienced all the way up to World War One. And took some powerful images. Um, if you look at the, uh, the newsreels of his buildup during the 30s, um, clear, they, he even used um, the images of the Roman Empire. Um, it talked about the Third Reich as the, you know, last for a thousand years, but you had um, uh, the sort of marching of troops was 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 the uh, had this great Roman uh, feel to it. You could put a great show on too, and then and make great, great movies as drums and music and flags and people marching and you know torches and um, actually what you find in this whole World War II era is a great expansion of visual images as a form of propaganda. It, there's a series that came out in world, the very start of World War One, the Why We Fight series uh, by Frank Capra, a noted uh, World War Two. World War Two. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, Frank Capra. And if you just look at those films, uh, they're now very historical, of course. But the visions are this dark menace, like an ink flowing over Europe with the mm -hmm. maps and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And Hitler capitalized on his own visual images, and then the United States would try to do something different, clearly. But the, the use of visual and sound and other images is, was just tremendously powerful in mobilizing people and getting people to get caught up and, and carried away. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States, of course, rebelled against this. In fact, they're proud that we got Franklin Roosevelt, you know, and Eleanor Roosevelt, and Germany got Hitler, and that's one of the big differences. There's a lot of question of how much, among historians I think, about how, how far Hitler really wanted to go. Did he really want to defeat Germany? Was he content? Defeat, defeat Germany? I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> okay, the brain's gone. Uh, defeat England. Uh, once Hitler had expanded and he defeated France, he had conquered, essentially conquered the continent of Europe. Did he have any desire to go after England? There's a lot of question that England could have survived, could have stayed independent if it had chosen to. Though its navy probably would have been weakened and that would be a threat to the United States with the German navy not being challenged in the Atlantic. In other words, just because he ended up in a world war with just about everyone doesn't mean that Hitler's ambition was to conquer the world. Well, that's the case or not, from the point of view of American foreign policy managers, could you take them that, well, sure, after, you know, after Austria and, and the Czechs and the Poles and the French, well, <laughs> and, and if the Russians would come in with that eventually, too, and Russia, can you say he doesn't want more? Right. Well, I mean, you had uh, 1936, you, uh, he gobbled up 
uh, with the Rhineland, I think it was. In the Rhineland, but keep in but mind, that, for the Americans was, to say, well, that's... That's part of Germany. In fact, there was an American diplomat, who, uh, English diplomat, who said, when someone said, Hitler's armies have moved into the Rhineland, and someone says, but isn't that in Germany? Yeah. Then you had the Sudetenland, which was that part of uh, the Czech Slovakia, Czechoslovakian area, which was heavily German. Uh, then it was Czech, all of Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. Then it was Austria, the Anschluss. Mm -hmm. And then, in a massive display of what a blitz, blitzkrieg can be, pardon me for emphasizing this, having uh, Polish heritage in my system, uh, the attack on Poland on September 1st of 1938 uh, conquered Poland. It took them a month or two to do it. Yeah. but And then turned around and went after France in another blitzkrieg, which took half at least of France and uh, the, the Netherlands and Denmark and Norway and probably not uh, Nor Norway, but not, Sw not Sweden, uh, and so on. Now, and don't forget that in 19, the summer of 1941, though we had a treaty with, uh, with, the, with the Soviet Union, simply went to war with the Soviet Union. That's exactly right. And almost got to the gates of, or got to the gates of Moscow. Yeah. And then, we, of course, we had the famous Battle of Leningrad. So this, 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 you can make an argument, maybe, that he had different ambitions than conquering the world, but it sure, <laughs> but, but you sure it would be a hard case to make. Yes, and, but from the point of view of the Roosevelt administration, whether he meant to conquer the world or just hold on to the Europe he had, mm -hmm. Eastern and Central you know, Europe and all that, and control the continent of Europe, was almost immaterial. He could not be allowed to control in this autarkic system of where he mm -hmm. controlled the whole economy and you couldn't trade with any of these countries unless Berlin said you could mm -hmm. and on the terms Berlin dictated. That was an intolerable, long-term intolerable state for the United States because of what it would do to the world economy. Mm -hmm. And the people in the Roosevelt administration would say things like, well, think about this now. Suppose Argentina has beef it needs to sell. It needs to sell it to Europe. Will the Hitler regime simply say, you can, we'll buy your beef, but you've got to give us a cabinet position, like mm -hmm. the Secretary of Defense in Argentina. Mm -hmm. you know? And then what happens to the Western Hemisphere? Have they got a foothold in the Western Hemisphere? So the and situation from the fall of France and all this has meant that this was intolerable to the United States, and it had to end. Now, we've covered some of the, the, the main characters, but we have a couple more that need to be touched on. Um, Stalin. Stalin controlled the Communist Party, the army of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, which also had a huge army, by the way. It was a huge army, but it had its own vulnerabilities. And they had made a treaty, Hitler, Stalin, made a treaty uh, through Ribbentrop, the foreign minister, um, which put them as allies for a period of time. A non-aggression treaty. A non-aggression. They won't go to war with each, each other. other. And of course, as you point out, in 1941, 41, um, Hitler rejects that treaty and sends millions of his soldiers, abandons going after Britain for the time being, and goes after uh, Russia, and there's just tremendous casualties and 
and horrible things happened there. Stalin was um, not elected, was he? Well, I'm not sure if he was ever, quote, elected, but if it was an election, it wouldn't be the way we would use the term election. <laughs> there was no uh, He was no, a strong no man. He was a ruthless, brutal dictator. Mm-hmm. And life of the masses was of no concern to him as long as his power and the power of the state uh, was, was maintained. And so he would purge those within the Soviet Union who th- potentially threatened him. I suppose Hitler was thinking, well, we have this non-aggression pact with, with the Soviet Union, but I don't really trust Stalin. <laughs> Maybe at some point if we really get bogged down in a war with England, Stalin will say, well, this would be my chance to get rid of Germany and come in from the other side. Maybe not. Uh, that's all sort of the anticipation and really the issue in all this is that these are things totally out of the control of the Western powers. What happens there, we don't know, though the Americans did have intelligence about a month before the Germans moved that the Germans were moving against Stalin and told Stalin and he allegedly refused to believe it. Well, we've, we've, I'm not even going to talk about Italy because they didn't uh, uh, get involved in the Pacific as, uh, as Stalin and Hitler did in their own ways. Uh, but I want to move now to Japan, and some of the main players there, which whose names come up, and we'll be talking about them, uh, start with the emperor, Hirohito. Well, the emperor in Japan traditionally did not get involved in political decisions, in policy decisions, in cabinet type of decisions. Uh, clearly, the emperor had a, he was a larger than than real figure. He was a direct descendant of God, if you will. He was Mm -hmm. an absolute authority, and he maintained that, I think, in part by not nibbling around in in issues, not Mm -hmm. crossing people. Mm -hmm. The bigger problem in Japan was that you had, within Japan, the army element, the military element, that was very much in favor of expanding to control large areas of raw materials and markets. You had the Navy that was expansionist, but much more wary of the United States Navy. The, the Japanese Navy was more hesitant because it understood the power of the U.S. Navy, not just where it was in 1940, but where it could be when they started building aircraft carriers and battleships. You had more moderates within the Japanese government, but increasingly these moderates had lost out to the power of the militants within Japan. And even in the mid-1930s, when people seemed to have political leaders who tried to cross military power within Japan, faced assassination, and some were assassinated. Um, It it was was one way of purging (laughs) these people. and so the emperors, he was the center of, of our hating Japan. Emperor Hirohito was the, uh, during World War II. And then we had the German military, the Japanese military uh, premier Tojo was another symbol in World War II. Mm-hmm. But for those people who knew Japan, who were in Japan, who spoke Japanese and understood Japanese, it was a more nuanced view. There were the extremists and then there were the moderates. And the whole purpose of American policy, 
at some point was to try to get the moderates into a stronger position of power. Now, the emperor wasn't going to step in and do that. Now, that wasn't the emperor's role. Upon occasion, the emperor would raise an eyebrow or say, I think we want to try something and show a proclivity. But he wasn't the type of person who put his hands in different types of things. Mm -hmm. And so there's this juxtap there's this fighting going on with them within the, the, uh, the policy managers within Japan of who would be in control. Increasingly, the, the military became more and more in control throughout the 1930s. The goal of the United States was to try to get the moderates to dominate. In that, in that country. And we see this, you know, extremists, moderates. We see this in lots of different countries, lots of different times. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Dr. Jonathan Utley, who is the author of uh, Going to War with Japan, 1937 to 1941. This is John Smetanka. The name of our program is With Respect. We'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Dr. Jonathan Utley, the author of Going to War with Japan, 1937 to 1941. This is John Smetanka. Doctor, when we left, you were describing how the interaction, the, which is a nice word of saying it, the, the, the internecine warfare between the moderates and the army, the, the more militaristic part of the Japanese leadership, uh, how that progressed during the, the, the uh, 30s um, and ended up somewhere. But now, this is, I'm going to take this point. We have now set all the players in place. I'm sure more names will come up, but you've got the emperor and Tojo and his, uh, his uh, supporters, the army supporters, the military. You have Roosevelt, <coughs> his secretary of state, Cordell Hull. Uh, the other people underneath Hull and around Roosevelt <coughs> who produce, um, who, who have the power of the United States government. Churchill is over there in Britain handling both the, the Germans and, because there's a British Empire out in, in the Pacific, there are players out there. He is a player out there. You have Hitler, you have Stalin. It's all a mixture of gas fumes and a, and a, and a match. Now, how do we stop? How do, what, what, let's talk about the Pacific. Because hundreds of thousands of our soldiers sailors and airmen fought out there. We yeah. had, it, it was a brutal war. It was brutal. It was <coughs> bloody. Could it have been avoided? Let's talk about that. Theoretically, yes. It depends on what each side is prepared to do. The United States was not prepared to allow Japan to dominate all of the Pacific, the Western Pacific, from Manchuria down through was now Indonesia, through Burma and Thailand and this whole area. It felt it could not 
tolerate that for because of the impact it was we spoke of before the impact it would have on the whole economic structure of the world carving this up if germany had europe and japan had asia then the u.s could not exist long term with its form of prosperity and democracy in a world in which it could not trade and get access to raw materials so the question is how do you persuade japan to abandon that militaristic expansionist policy initially it wasn't clear the japanese were going that far they were in northern china it was a very limited little thing in like 37 into 38 and so we waited we mean the united states waited we said you shouldn't be doing that we won't agree to it we don't assent to it but we're not going to do anything really to stop you and we're certainly not going to put ourselves in a position of where you're going to lash out on us and lead to war as the Japanese continued to expand, but China did not fail, the position became, well, the Japanese will eventually learn that they can't win in China. And so all we have to do is wait for the Japanese economy to break under the pressure of this huge war and for the Japanese public to become disillusioned. It was their Vietnam, you might even say. Disillusioned with the war in China that brings nothing. So any settlement that would come between Japan and China that the U.S. might help broker had to be done in such a way that the Japanese military would lose face, that the Japanese people would see that this war in China brought no benefits, and that Japanese military expansion was bringing no benefits. So it wasn't in the view of the United States important or even desirable to reach an early agreement on a compromise basis. And then as Japan looked at the United States and it gradually put not economic warfare or real commercial sanctions on Japan, but as it gradually built up its own, and Japan saw it harder to US build up its own military establishment, and Japan saw it harder to get certain supplies. Let's stop right okay. there. That's, that's a fascinating thing about your book that I never realized, that during the run-up to this war, the source of much of the oil and the scrap metal, which were used to fly planes to fight the war in China, and previously uh, Manchuria, and Korea. We forgot Korea. Well, they've had Korea since '85. Yeah. Now, much of the the raw materials used came from the United States, and we continued to give it to them, sell it to them, sell it to them. Yeah. I've been mean, yeah. given yeah. yes, provided. And this made many Americans angry. There was a whole lobbying movement in the United States, uh, which was a help China program and medical missionaries from China would come back and go on radio and say it never felt made me feel any better that when I pulled f you know, fragments of steel out of the bodies of Chinese children that these were made in the United States um, and yet from the point of view of Cordell Hall Secretary of State and the foreign policy establishment what's the alternative do we not sell them any gasoline do we cut them off? Do we impose economic sanctions in order to stop this horrific war in China? And the view of the American government is we don't like the horrific war, we don't like what Japan's doing in China, but it's not worth confronting them. And economic warfare, however you define it, is a major step and that could lead to physical military warfare. 
And that, we're not prepared to pay that price for China. When Japan goes out of China, moves into the South Pacific, threatens the oil supplies down there and the tin supplies and try to seize them for their own purposes. Then the United States begins, there are elements within the Roosevelt administration are pushing very hard for this thing they call economic warfare. This is great. We cut off their oil, they can do nothing. They'll be starved out in a matter of months. They will have to capitulate. Others are saying, well, you don't know if they're going to capitulate or not. I mean, they may just go down there and if we go they make a run to the Dutch East Indies to get oil, are we going to put the Navy down there to stop them? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, that, so it's, it's a process of, 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 of development. At first, it's just China. We don't like it, but we're not prepared to fight for it, for China. Now Japan begins to move further, further south into areas that we consider to be much more important to us. But at this time, one of the reasons they're moving further and further south is because Britain is very weak after the fall of France. It pulls out of Asia, essentially. It's just the United States. Not clear what the U.S. will do, said the Japanese. So they go down further, further south. Not all the way, but edging down that way. And there are people saying, let's let's put these restrictions on. The restrictions are are niggling. Um, Stop the sale of aviation gasoline to the Japanese. So the planes can't be, be fueled. Okay, this is the most interesting one, the aviation gasoline issue. American planes burn 100 octane gasoline. Japanese planes burn 86 or 85 octane gasoline. We say we're going to embargo all sale of aviation gasoline. And okay, Roosevelt says, we need that for our own industrial, our own military stockpilings. We're going to build 50,000 airplanes. We got to fuel them. So we have to stockpile large amounts of aviation gasoline for our own defensive purposes. Somebody five, six levels down within the government, literally five or six levels down, in a bureaucratic position that no one ever heard of, defines aviation gasoline as anything that's 86 octane, is 80 octane, or 75 octane, or any oil that you can get 75 octane gasoline from, which then creates a total oil embargo against Japan. A week later, they discovered in the State Department what this guy had done. You know, you can't do this. That's the most forceful type of economic warfare. You can get a response from Japan that's going to be extremely military. And then they rewrite it to 86 octanes. That's okay for Japanese planes. And it means the thing. But this is the convoluted fighting going on. People, we got to be tough against the Japanese first. You get tough against the Japanese, and they're going to go to war with us. Now, in its simplest form, you have the Navy. But as soon as France falls in the summer of 1940, and the British are in danger, and the British fleet is in danger of what um, some negotiated settlement perhaps with Germany where the fleet would be promised to stay in harbor or something like that. No one knows what's going to happen. The Navy says the last place we want to be is in the Pacific. We want to go to the Atlantic. That's where the threat is. That's the American Navy. American Navy. We want to take the American Navy out of the Pacific. We want to put it in the Atlantic. But the State Department's saying, you can't do that. That'll just give a carte blanche to the Japanese to go anywhere they want. And so we get this maneuvering, and it's really very involved and very intricate in development of war plans and all. But essentially what happens, I think, is the easiest way to look at this. Initially, the U.S. wants to deter Japan from going south toward the Dutch East Indies and the oil, this area considered vital to us. So as a way of saying, look out, Japan, 
you can't keep doing this forever. Now, we're not going to confront you right now, but we really don't like it. We want you to take notice. We're going to move our fleet from Southern California to Pearl Harbor. That'll get them. Right on the flank of where the Japanese fleet would have to be if it went south toward the Dutch East Indies. It would leave the Japanese home islands vulnerable. That will deter any expansionist military actions of the Japanese. Uh, the Navy's thinking, this is ridiculous. We don't want to be at Pearl Harbor. We don't have the facilities at Pearl Harbor. And they actually get some of the warships transferred back over to the Atlantic later on. But the issue comes now, if you, not to jump ahead of our story, but the issue is that a deterrent is very effective so long as the nation that's being deterred accepts it. When it's no longer prepared to be deterred, that deterrent becomes a target. You can't go south to the Dutch East Indies while the American fleet is sitting on your flank. You either must give up your ambitions or get rid of the fleet. That's the logical thing. If, if you give up, the deterrent worked. And Japan mm -hmm. then negotiates a settlement. But all the negotiations that the Japanese and the Americans did, and they got very, very intense in 1941, were to achieve, in Cardell Hall's view, a whole sweeping change. Japan would give up its ambitions, it would change its military policy, it would throw out the military, it would change its foreign policy, it would become much more like Japan was, say, in the mid-1920s, when it was not dominated by the military and was a free, trading, loving country. That is a revolutionary shift, probably impossible to have accomplished by 1941, maybe at any time. The alternative is what we refer to in the diplomatic phrase as a modus vivendi, a way of living together. Latin phrase meaning a way of living together. Yeah. Yes. So it is simply, what would have happened if the United States had simply not tried to reach a fundamental settlement, but just say, okay, Japan, you stay where you are. We'll open up some trade to you. We'll get that oil going back to you and the scrap metal and the things that we'd eventually embargoed by the summer of 1941. Uh, actually, in the summer of 1941, we freeze all Japanese assets, which means Japan can get no money to buy anything in the United States unless the government releases those assets. Now Japan's in a put yourself as Japan in this situation. The U.S. has declared what amounts to economic warfare against us. No trade, no oil. <laughs> no scrap metal, no machines, no carbon. You can't buy anything for the United States. So this, is, this is what they're seeing this as. And then at the same time, Germany goes to war against the Soviet Union. Now this potential enemy that Japan always feared about, the Russians. They had fought a nasty war with Russia in 1938 in northern China. Uh, what was going to happen there? Now the Russians are fighting for their life against Germany. Japan has not, does not have to pull any troops back to worry about the Russians. Now, the military says, is the time to strike south, unless we can reach an agreement with the United States. We're going to take a break night now before the next step. We're going to find out in a minute what it is. This is John Smutanka. The name of our program is With Respect. We're talking to Dr. Jonathan Utley, the author of Going to War with Japan, 1937 to 1941.
We'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect with Dr. Jonathan Utley, the author of Going to War with Japan, 1937 to 1941. This is John Smetanka. Jonathan, when we broke, you had set the stage for putting me in the, in the, uh, in the uh, Japanese capital of Tokyo, uh, getting ready to advise Tojo and the emperor hey, these guys are going to shut off all of our natural resources, but wait a minute, the Russians are tied up in their battle with Germany. Is this, isn't this the best time to go south? A golden opportunity. Golden so op one side says it's a golden opportunity. And the navies, well, he says, don't underestimate the power. The Japanese Navy says, don't estimate, underestimate the power of the United States. It, it's, you know, you it's to be tough to defeat the United States Navy. I mean, yes, it's huge and it's getting bigger. And here we have the, the, another name coming in, which is very famous, Yamamoto, Admiral Yamamoto. I mean, the Japanese Navy understood militarily that, and this I think is the overall Japanese strategy, the only way you can win a war, quote, win a war with the United States is to cripple the United States Navy for a certain amount of time so that the U.S. could not launch a counterattack against Japan. And during that year or year and a half or two years you, you time you bought, you would fortify your defenses in the Western Pacific to the point that the cost of the U.S. coming out and trying to take this, these, turns out, islands back would be so high that they would be reluctant to do so. And at the same time, you enter into a negotiated settlement saying, we don't want a war with you. To, to, we want to simply reach an agreement where we have our go greater East Asia and South Seas co-prosperity sphere. You have your area, and we can all live in peace. A drawn out ultimate war would be impossible for Japan to win. And the Japanese Navy knew this. So the question comes, um, we're basically telling the Japanese by the summer of 1941 that we cannot tolerate their going south. They have this great opportunity to grow south. Now the, go south. Now the irony of all this is the last place the Ar U.S. Army wants to fight is in Asia. It has viewed the Philippines as a vulnerable place. The Philippines yep. is, is is run by the United States. It has not yet been given its independence. We took it over after the Spanish-American-Cuban War and it's still a territory of the United States. So we promised it independence, but this, this war in the Pacific sort of got in the way. They'll get its, their independence after World War II. And the U.S. Army is in control of the Philippines, unable to defend the Philippines. It doesn't have a navy out there to defend it, doesn't have the facilities, doesn't have anti-aircraft guns, doesn't have any runways that can't, you know, it doesn't have enough troops. It is vulnerable to any Japanese takeover if the Japanese choose to do so. They could bypass it and just go straight south. Army doesn't want to fight out there. The navy doesn't want to fight in the Pacific. They want to go fight in the Atlantic. They want to defeat Germany. And then they can turn their attention to this inferior naval power of, of Japan. 
And so the war plan that the United States has at this time started out as they called, you know, the great words they use, War Plan Dog or Plan D, and became Rainbow Five, war against a variety of nations at the same time. We'll wage the war in the Atlantic, we will stand on the defensive in the Pacific. So you have the government, the, the, the diplomatic side, the political side of the U.S. government saying, if Japan goes down there, we're going to have to stand and fight them at some point. While the military side says, if Japan goes down there, we're not going to fight them. We're going to go over and fight this war first, and then we'll take care of them however many years later that takes. So you had military strategy that was not consistent with diplomatic policy. In the United States. In the, in the United States. I mean, they weren't, they weren't on the same page. Uh, and that, that involved, too, even uh, the movement of the fleet from California to Hawaii, and some to take go back to the uh, to division of battleships over to the Atlantic yeah. and all that, and not sending. Now, when the decision had been made in the summer of in July of 1941 that we were going to have to stop the Japanese from going south, when Roosevelt made that decision, then the question is, he told the, the army, defend the Philippines. And they saluted and said, yes, sir, <laughs> we're certainly going to try, sir. <laughs> um, and then they said, you know, the, what might work is this new B-17 bomber that just come on there. It's a long-range, high-altitude bomber. It's the workhorse of World War II movies. Um, and so we're going to fly these bombers out there, and they're going to be able to interdict any Japanese fleet that comes past by going high overhead and bombing them. High-altitude bombing wasn't the best way to sink a, a warship, but American military... Army Air Corps had no other choice. This is the only weapon we have. We're told we have to defend the Philippines. So they got really excited. And they're saying, great, we need another six months, preferably into the spring of 42, to build up the Philippines. So now you got the Secretary of State saying, the Japanese, we know from our, all our evidence, that going south, the Army isn't prepared to wage war against Japan for another six to nine months. Can we postpone war with Japan until the army's ready? And now this complicates the negotiations. So you can't break off negotiations because that will lead to the actions. And so the U.S., the State Department, actually Cordell Hall personally sits down with a Japanese ambassador who's much more of a, of a moderate. And Nomura. Uh, had been a foreign minister before, and now he's the ambassador to the United States, and says to him, and there are all types of interesting reports coming out, that the Japanese might be prepared to negotiate a settlement because they don't want to go to war with the United States, but they can get some security without going to war. I think Hull makes a major mistake there by trying to reach a total settlement on all issues given the world structure with these negotiations. These are big, big things. Worldview, liberal commercialism, give up, control the military, get out of China, do all this type of stuff. Actually, he says, get out of China, but don't worry about Manchuria, you can stay in Manchuria. Though we had said we'd never agree to that. That's fine, we're gonna agree to that. Um, and that's hard to do with another country, to get this type of sweeping, sweeping conclusion. What he ended up doing, what, what might have been possible, was this modus vivendi. Look, we'll give you a little oil if you'll pull out of southern Indochina. You know, we need to take a step back. 
Each take each each take a step back. Each, yeah. We'll take a step back by selling you more oil on your peacetime basis, but it'll be some oil. And you step back by, you had moved into southern Indochina, into Saigon, step out of that area, pull back a little bit, and then we can continue negotiations for further, you know, we'll give you a little bit more, you step back. Sound familiar with the negotiations with oh, Iran? Really? You know, you do this and we'll give you a little something. And that, the hope was, you know, maybe that will get the bold in the moderates, strengthen the moderates within Japan. And they'll will be able to either a move Japan from this expansionist policy, or let's see if we can buy six to nine months more peacetime. Now, at this point, we have uh, an advantage, a special advantage, the United States does, because they have broken the Japanese naval code uh, and and diplomatic code, the magic code, and so they know. The nature of the negotiate of the communications back and forth between Tokyo and the American ambassador, and what can you can do and you not do, but is in reading your book, there was a a serious disconnect between Nomura in the uh, United States and the positions he may have wanted to take, and what the uh, Tokyo and the army uh, and the military uh, back home. Could, would allow him to take. In fact, they were opposed to that negotiation. Definitely. Definitely. So when Nomura sent his cables back, he would leave out certain things. He didn't, you know, he would make it look softer that the Americans were more willing to compromise than the, than Hall really was prepared, because he understood that if he sent back the hardline position that Cordell Hall presented, these four points, you must agree to all of them before we even discuss anything else, that the Japanese government would say, no, that's ridiculous. You're asking us to give up everything we've done so far in the last several years. We're not going to do that. The piecemeal, the small thing, the little bit. Look, how about a little oil for one just pulling back, that was never given to the Japanese. It was never presented to the Japanese, probably because, well, two reasons. One is that the feeling within Washington's, well, they'll never go for it. And secondly, if we offer them a compromise and the Chinese get wind of this, it will break the morale of China. And if China's resistance collapse, there's a million men in army in Japan that can be pulled out. The Japanese can never ha take a million soldiers back to the home islands. They're going to send them somewhere else. That's right. You know, into this South Pacific. Now, this is now in the fall of 1941. Correct. At the time that all this is going on, there are military plans going on, both on, on both sides of the Pacific. But talking about the Japanese military plans during the fall, they were developing a strategy for sending troops, and they did in fact send troops down south, Southeast Asia. They took take over parts of the the uh, uh, Southeast Asia, Burma, um, and uh, 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 Vietnam, and and we're going down to the Dutch Indies. Will become Vietnam yeah. and Cambodia and we'll Laos. That's and right. All that. At the same time, they're also making plans. Like every nation does, they have all kinds of contingencies. One of their major contingencies was an attack eastward to take out the naval base at um, uh, Honolulu, as well as take over Midway Island, which was halfway between the two and would be like an, a, a, a aircraft carrier they could use as a base 
to, uh, to bomb everybody. Now, they also had a plan, which eventually was executed in 1942, to go up to the Aleutian Islands and threaten the United States by going after the, the American mainland in a place where we were most vulnerable, which is this little set of islands this which stick horrible out. weather area where horrible just, area. Atu, just a very hard to fight in that area. Atu and Kiska, I remember the, the, those two yeah. islands that they eventually attacked. Now, this was, this was going on at the same time they were talking, and Nomura was talking peace in Washington. And we knew that there was some preparation going on. We knew that the Japanese military was had various contingency plans, even if we didn't know the specific place they were going to attack us. Well, I think we assumed that they would always have contingencies, and they probably had a contingency yeah. for everything. Sure. Uh, I found it fascinating. One of the best summaries of American position in the summer of 1941 was written in a cable I read in the archives in Washington of the magic intercept from the Japanese embassy back to Tokyo. It summarized very clearly what the American position was militarily. It basically summarized Rainbow Five, which was stand on the defense of the, in the Pacific and wage the war in the Atlantic. It, it's sort of like these things are hard to keep secret. Um, <laughs> you know, right. They weren't That's breaking right. our code, but you know, it wasn't that hard to figure out from hearing you know naval people talking, just talking publicly, not about any war plan, but what they wanted to do and didn't want to do, what the Navy was going to do, and they had it spot on. Uh, we knew what the Japanese what wanted to do, but we didn't know exactly where they would strike. First. First. Um, there was the possibility that they would simply bypass the Philippines and head over toward Burma mm -hmm. to try to put pressure on England with their ally, with the Japanese ally of Germany. Um, and Roosevelt was asked, are we going to go to war if they attack Burma? And he said, probably not. But at some point, you know, we will. I mean, at this point, by 41, there was no question the Roosevelt administration had made the decision that it had to get involved in the war against Germany. And, and, and one, of the, one of the fascinating things, we followed by Ms. Stanley Hornbeck. Stanley Hornbeck, yes. Which was, who was a person who had very definitive views about what we were doing and what we tolerated. I just want to quote one, one uh, part of that. He, well, he starts, we, we saw Japan take Formosa. We helped Japan take Korea. We let Japan take Manchuria. We let Japan take Reihei. And he goes down the line with all these things. And now he, he says, and now there is talk about drawing lines, drawing lines in the sand, yeah. red button issues, I mean hot button issues. Um, you must not cross these lines. You must not immediately and directly jeopardize the British and the uh, Dutch and the American strategic positions and so on. Now, the, the idea of demarcation lines was something that Cordell Hull fought all throughout the, th the, th the late 30s in that he may not have liked what was going on but he wanted a flexible, a flexible strategy which didn't draw lines in a hard and unchanging ways. We're going to take a break right now because it's now late November 1941 and something is about to happen. We're talking to Dr. Jonathan Utley on With Respect 
The name of his book is Going to War with Japan, 1937 to 1941. This is John Smetanka. We'll be right back. We're now back on With Respect. This is John Smetanka. We're talking to Dr. Jonathan Utley, the author of Going to War with Japan, 1937 to 1941. Jonathan, when we, when we broke, all the, all the diplomacy, the, cha the talking, the cables, the plans, the demands, the suggestions, and the fighting inside of the American government itself was just uh, bloodthirsty. What happened around 19, about uh, the end of November of uh, 1941? Well, what we had, first in, in July of 41, we had frozen Japanese assets effectively ending all trade. So now there was a timeline. Japan had to make a decision, either reach an agreement with Japan, by a, with the United States, by a certain time or strike south to get the oil, essentially, that it needed. It, this couldn't drag on for a year or two years. This, there was a timeline, and the timeline, uh, for military reasons for the Japanese, would have been into November of 1941, later extended to December. It had to be done because their war strategy was, we can't go south while the fleet is sitting there on our flank at Pearl Harbor, and if we wait till too late in December, the weather will become so bad in the northern Pacific, we won't be able to launch the attack. So we have to do it now. We can't wait till the spring. So there was this massive effort to try to reach a diplomatic settlement. Hull is negotiating at great, great length. Um, we're trying to bring the British into it. What can we do to get the British to help in all this? The British are basically given up on the Pacific. They said, well, you go ahead and defend our empire in the Pacific, thank you. A lot of suspicion on the part of the Americans. You know, we're not here to defend the British Empire, thank you very much. We're here for our own self-interest. Uh, we don't really care about India. You know, that's your empire. And don't, and we, a lot of suspicion that the British are gonna try to suck the U.S. in to fight their war. And we wanna fight the war that is vital to us in our view. And, uh, and we were, in, in fact, the British Churchill was trying to get us involved in the European war, yes. which we weren't, at least uh, militarily, we were by supplies and... And, 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 uh, and our destroyers were, our hunt, destroyers. were hunting Japanese submarines right. and, and trying to sink them whenever we found them. Right. Uh, which is an act of war, but it was considered to be an act of self-defense in the Roosevelt administration because right. some submarine had fired on an American destroyer right. and uh, sunk it, actually. Now, but the, the preparations still had to go on. The military preparations on both sides was going on. Mm -hmm. We're still sitting with those battleships and cruisers. Aircraft carriers, too. And aircraft carriers uh, based out of Honolulu. I would have to say, luckily for us, <laughs> they had the carriers gone on December 7th. But in, what was the last, if you can be concise on this one, what was the last set of chances at peace discussion would, there, was there? The last gasp 
was would Cordell Hull offer this modus vivendi to the Japanese government late in November of 1941. A modus vivendi, a way of sort of living temporarily, which is a little oil for a pullback of Japanese troops. The British pushed against that. No, because that'll simply mean that ja the Chinese will lose any morale, they will collapse, and the situation in Asia will be worse than it ever was. Hall has to make a decision. Does he make this proposal to the Japanese? And in late November of 1941, he decides not to offer the modus vivendi offer to the Japanese and issues instead what we would talk, call today one for the record. This is a long statement of everything we believed and been saying for a decade or more. The Japanese ambassador looked at it and read it, realizing what it was, said, is there nothing more? And Hull said, just go away. And Hull was exhausted. I think physically, physically I think he was worn down. Uh, Hull was not a well man. He had uh, somewhat controllable diabetes. He was, he had uh, a problem with a lung, which was going to get worse and worse. He'd been doing this for hours, for hours, for days, for months, personally involved in a you know, heroic, if you will, effort. And he didn't see, with no support from the British and all these people within the government of the United States saying, you don't want to, you don't want to step back, you want to take a firm line and all that. He simply washed his hands with it and simply said it's now in the hands of the, hands of the Army and the Navy. He gave up on diplomacy. On the morning of December 7, 1941, um, the Japanese naval force coming in from the north um, blasted, destroyed many of our uh, facilities killed 4,000 some odd people in the uh, in in an attack on Pearl Harbor, sank many of our battleships. Luckily for us, the uh, carriers were out on patrol someplace else and were not were not sunk. Now, this is this very event galvanized us into a war with Japan the next day, and then Hitler made his own decision, foolish by their standards, uh, living up to his treaty with the Japanese, and, and declared war on the United States. And the next day after that, we declared war against Germany, and the, and, and the game was on, as they say. The game was afoot, in Sherlock Holmes's phrase. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a, a phrase, here's a question I want you to is given a, a short answer because we're running out of time. This is a difficult one. Did Franklin Delano Roosevelt intentionally and premeditatedly use the fleet as a lure for an incident which would set the, the American people ready for, for war? No. All right. There are people who believe that the, he did, in fact, do that, including many people in the military and others. But um, I recognize that there are many different uh, points of view here. There's absolutely no evidence for it. Boy, if I could find the evidence, I would have made my name, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, every historian loved to uncover the smoking That's gun right. on all that. Uh, that Roosevelt want to get involved in the war in Europe? Yes. Did he even, one point, commissioned a little not frigate, sailing ship, made a U.S. naval ship and sent it out in the path of where it thought it might be captured by the Japanese Navy, and that would be an incident? Yes. 
Pearl Harbor wasn't where we thought the Japanese were going. And I think Roosevelt was shocked by that. I think one of the reasons that we wonder, is there a conspiracy? Is because, look at how we talk about it. We talk about the sneak attack mm -hmm. on Pearl Harbor. Now, I'm surprised, like, they should have told us they're going to attack at dawn. I mean, nations don't do that. Armies, navies don't do that. Mm -hmm. How could they, the Japanese, have accomplished this? It was a brilliant naval maneuver. High, high risk to the Japanese Navy. Extremely high. If those American carriers that were not at Pearl Harbor, had if been. they had found the Japanese carriers when those planes were over Pearl Harbor, the war was over right, right then. Like it was an all-or-nothing gamble. But we assume that the Japanese weren't capable of that. There's a certain type of racial insensitivity that goes in here. On both sides, on both sides yeah. of, the, of the Pacific, the Japanese did not have a great deal of regard uh, for us as a culture. Uh, we were a heterogeneous bunch of misfits. Yeah. And, the, and the, ja the Americans looked on the Japanese as part of the yellow peril or whatever. I mean, these are the kind of uh, stereotypical uh, views that were had filtered either up or down in the countries and, and the peoples of both sides. It did galvanize the nation for it war. Did. It stopped the debate. What I found fascinating in all the research I've done in all the military archives and civilian archives in Washington and the State Department and the presidential papers, I never once saw a single person in all these 37 to 41 years who talked about the human consequences of war. No one talked about the loss of life that will come Jonathan, from Jonathan, I'm glad you raised that because as a final point, I want to say that in reading your book and others on this area, so much of what was going on was over economic issues, economy, ec economic issues, and to a lesser extent cultural issues, as opposed to um, military issues to start the whole thing and then the military took over for both sides final question this is like you know the 30 seconds you have to summarize everything if you had to give advice to policymakers today on how to negotiate in difficult situations between nations what is the what is the way what are the lessons we learned here that didn't work. Look at the long-term consequences of your short-term actions. I start writing the book with a statement that nations don't always choose to go to war. They choose to follow a course of action that leads to war. And to avoid war, you have to see it coming and take the action early to avoid it. To get into it, you take step by step by step until the next logical step is war. And so when people like uh, William Tecumseh Sherman say, war is hell and general after general after general who people who have been in the battlefields and seen the blood and ha ordered people to take actions which caused their death those people for the most part are not the people who want to fight a war jonathan thank you very much this has been absolutely fascinating it's my pleasure it's been a, it's been great the name of our program is With Respect. We're on every Sunday morning at 11 and every Thursday morning at 10. Until next time, remember, our mantra might fit for what we've been talking about, which is if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.
to you.